life, art, the Bible, and the conversations that tend to arise between them all. Life is not simple, art is not boring, and the Bible is not just a destiny book. At least, that's what Charles and I believe. In other words, there's a lot going on here, so join us on the Believing Art Podcast as we attempt to discuss it all and everything that lies in between. Seth Brown, and this is the Believing Art Podcast. Today, we have... I, I, I realize I've been listening back some, to some of our episodes, and I realize I start just about every episode by saying, we are really excited. That's right. <laughs> Which is, it's so true. It's true. Because every time I, I look at what you know we'll be discussing, I just get really excited. And today, we are especially excited, excited. about this one. This uh, We're doing another Null Day. Yes. Dancing around the golden calf, calf. I believe That's is right. the uh, particular title. And Charles, you have a, you have a distinct relationship with this particular. Yes, band. it was my dissertation topic. <laughs> All right, so I have spent a long time researching this um, and looking at it from uh, the, uh, not only just what the the text has to say in and of itself, and some of the words and why they're used the way they are. Uh, but also the history of interpretation. Mm, okay. Um, the way the story has been received and interpreted, uh, particularly throughout the both the Jewish and the Christian tradition. Yeah. And what that how that may or may not help us um, understand what's happening. Yeah. In the text. So. Okay. Well, let's just go and dive right into the painting. Uh, we can talk about the painting, and then we'll read some of the verses that correspond to the painting, ask some questions and then uh, yeah. see where it goes Go from there. So, okay. Um, so this, like we said earlier, this is a, another painting by Emil Nolde, German expressionism. Um, and so you're going to see right off the bat, extreme vivid colors, um, distinct brush strokes, um, very, uh, almost not a, not realistic interpretation of the scene. Um, there, I mean, there are elements of realism, but it's very, very much like impressionism, but, but exaggerated as we know German expressionism does. Uh, and there's a lot of yellows, a lot of, um, just intense colors mm -hmm. slashing across this painting. Yeah. And that, and that on the yellows is a lot of gold. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. it's a golden cap, right. which is featured in sort of the middle of the painting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so in, in the center of the painting, you have what appears to be three figures, uh, kind of wildly dancing. Right. Just and you see them in the midst of their movement, and they they're almost flailing about. Um, there's two females. You can see their 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 tops are stripped down, and the the one in the middle is male or female. We're not sure, but it's 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 very much. Um, an extreme painting. Mm. Um, well, and that's consistent with how the story's been interpreted, even in the way in which you know the famous Charlton Heston, Cecil B. DeMille, yeah, movie, the the Ten Commandments. When you get to the golden calf scene, it's it's very similar. It's like a wild party, uh, almost an orgy type right. of thing with uh, everybody throwing off restraint mm -hmm. and dancing around this calf. Yeah. And 
Um, I guess one of the big questions is is whether or not the text itself actually warrants that particular kind of extreme mm. interpretation. Do we is, is there evidence to suggest that in the text itself? Right. right? Certainly in tradition there is. That's how it's been. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of questions that that come up uh, on a close reading of this text, and I think particularly the painting prompts us to ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And so um, why don't we read the first six verses of Exodus 32, since that's the context of the painting? Okay. And then we can kind of go through it and talk about some of the peculiarities of the words that are used and see where that takes us. Sounds great. So, yes, normally Charles reads, but today I will be reading. Seth's going to read. Which is exciting. So we're going to be reading Exodus uh, chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. 6. 1 through 6. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold which are in your ears, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molten calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of this out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. All right. So I think some of your translations may say they rose up to revel mm. um, or something like that. Um, plays actually a pretty neutral, um, a pretty neutral word to use there, a very fair word to use. But um, let's kind of talk about some of the things here. Um, it says, when people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said. So I think something to notice here is that word delayed. Mm. Uh, when people saw that Moses delayed, um, that's a very unusual Hebrew word uh, that's translated delayed. It's only used, it's, it's actually not delayed. Uh, the word is to be ashamed. Actually, it's only used one other time uh, in the book of Judges. Okay. Uh, when women see that their husbands have delay are delayed from coming home from battle. Uh, right. And they're, they've delayed because they're dead. Wow. And so one of the things that this sets up is, you know, it, it's really the shame of Moses mm. not coming back. It's sort of the, the moment at which you realize you're leaderless. Yeah. Right. And you're embarrassed as a community by that. You know, right. it's, it's, um, here we are out in the middle of nowhere. Our leader has abandoned us, right? And so there's a sense of communal loss. Right. Um, and so when they gathered to Aaron, the Hebrew, that preposition there is actually not to, it's against, 
right? So they, they're coming against the only leader left, right, which is Aaron. So this, this, the stakes are pretty high here in terms of what the community is actually feeling. And what's interesting to me about this and what prompted me to study it so deeply is that the golden calf story is the iconic story in the Bible of idolatry. That's right. Right. I mean, we talk about idolatry, you're almost immediately going to go to the golden calf. I mean, even in our current language today, when we talk about golden calf stories, it's, we're referring to something that's idolatrous usually. Um, But if we kind of back up and look at just kind of what the text is saying, right? It's, talking about things it's really giving us um, perhaps reasons for what's about to happen right, right? yeah right. it's it's talking to us about the motivation so um, they gather against Aaron they want him to make gods to go before us substitute gods um, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt uh, we don't know what's happened to Moses. And so Aaron responds and says, you know, take off the rings of gold which are in your ears and wives and sons and daughters. Okay, the the thing about that is the take off um, is a word that, verb that has to do with a ripping away. Mm. So this isn't this careful dissembling of an earring from an ear, right? The, the, The picture is almost cartoonish. Of oh, wow. just going around ripping ear gold off of people's ears, oh. right? It's something that is very fast moving, very fast paced. Um, he takes all of this gold. They bring it to Aaron. Um, he throws it in this thing, in this, um, in the. He takes an engraving tool, makes, and then they um, make a fashion it into a an, a molten calf. Yeah. Okay, so why a calf? Why not something That's a else? Great question. Well, it's probably what they knew, right? Coming out of Egypt, mm, yeah. right? You've got the because they they've just come out. They've of Egypt. just come out of Egypt, and so a bull. There's different kinds of bulls or calves that are used in Egypt, and also the area that they would have gone into, right? In Sinai, right? Mm-hmm. That's still attached to Egyptian area of the world, right? We're not into Canaan yet, right? Mm. So it probably was something that they that they knew, and then Aaron, who you know we've just read in earlier parts of Exodus, uh, is the high priest. It's the priestly role. Right. So he's the authority figure, and he declares a festival to Yahweh. Right. That's so, right. So Aaron's, to the Lord. To the Lord. Right. So Aaron's redirecting. All of this, the the people are, you know, make gods to go before us, and Aaron is in a, in a priestly role, sort of turning it and declaring a festival to Yahweh. Well, the people don't protest that. In fact, what they do is they rise up and they they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, and they sit down to eat, drink, play, and to eat and drink and rise up to to play, mm. right? So somehow. You know, the, the the story of of idolatry has been in the tradition has been turned into 
the wildest of feasts, as mm-hmm. Noel Day represents. That's right. Right. Um, but the, but the you know but the, but the question is what is this feasting, right? I mean the the eating and the drinking and the um, and and what is the problem with that? You know, is right. there a problem right. with that? Well, if you read in Deuteronomy 14, the purpose of the tithe was to have a big party. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we have parties with eating and drinking. The Lord, the Lord commands the multiple, multiple parties. parties. So there's nothing really wrong with the party. And it doesn't say anything about dancing here. It just says rose up to play. Well, play is that Hebrew word uh, meaning to laugh. Right, which is Isaac's name. That's right. So it can be play. It it can be um, anything from uh, simply laughter to play to sexual behavior. I mean, it could be a wild party, right? But it doesn't have to be that. Right. Right. It's just that. That's generally the way it's it's read, and so when we think about kind of the context where we find this, um, you've got a bunch of is you know you've got Israel out in the middle of the desert. They don't have a leader. Mm-hmm. They're basically lost. They don't know where they are. So what do you do? What's the natural inc- inclination? Um, to bring a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Well, generally we do that through, uh, through gatherings, through feasting, through song and through dance, right? It's a way of communal bonding, mm-hmm. right? And it's also a way that if you're out in the a desert, you're making a big noise around a particular thing, mm-hmm. then it acts to protect you from all kinds of intruders or so it was thought. Right. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, the louder noise you make, the more people there are, the more your numbers are. The more your numbers are, and the more your people are going to not kind of want to come yeah. close to that. Well, and even even later in the text, you see Joshua observing, as Moses starts to come down, mm-hmm. the mountain, that there's there's a loud noise like a war. Like a war, yes. In the camp, mm-hmm. which is... is that's typically right. kind of interpreted as like, uh, oh, no, they're, you know, look how bad it is down there. But perhaps it is uh, creating this sense of... How strong of uh, mm-hmm. how strong our numbers are, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And um, I think the other thing that we've talked about throughout the podcast, right, mm-hmm. is that when we read these stories, we have to remember that we know more about them as readers, absolutely, yeah. than than the people would have known were they the characters in the story. Mm-hmm. Right, because if we think about well, what you know, what would you do? Because there's no evidence, as you were talking about, we were talking about earlier. Um, what did the people know coming out of Egypt? Now, in chapter 24, Moses read the law to them, mm. um, but you know, again, how would that have worked if you've got? Literally tens of thousands of Israelites. Right. Who's going to know and hear what? Yeah. Well, and even if they did hear it accurately, 
you know, did they understand? Did it? they understand it? Um, you know, this is probably within a very short time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're trying to teach someone a lesson, do you honestly expect them to hear it the first time and get it right? Mm-hmm. Like that's not a realistic way to approach right. things. And um, so if we read on, of course, then mm-hmm. in the next, the next few verses, um, God, and, God sees all of this, becomes very, very angry, uh, wants to be left alone so that the, um, his anger would consume them. Mm-hmm. He wants to start over with Moses. And, of course, Moses then talks him out of it, really based on two things. One, his promise to the patriarchs, and right. the other his what God's reputation among the Egyptians would be. Yeah. You know. Um, and I think just a side note here, this story read in light of Jewish experience, um, it really is the moment in the text, the moment at Sinai where the law is given, that the structure around God's people is formed. Mm. Right? It all goes back to Sinai. Right? This yeah. was... The chosen people, um, the people who will be God's treasured possession. There'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's all established in Exodus 19. So this is a really defining moment. And yet, it's also the moment um, when someone like Emil Fackenheim, who is the, was one of the first to write about Jewish experience after the Holocaust, mm. uh, would say that is also the moment when Israel almost wasn't right anymore so it's a very very, precarious moment very precarious moment it's a it's a really tenuous moment um when god's establishing this establishing this people and just a few chapters later is annihilating the people wanting to annihilate them. that's right and start over so um at least from a post-Holocaust perspective, um, Fackenheim uses the word hovering. The, mm. the Jews must hover between a God who would deliver and a God who would destroy. Wow. And that's particularly coming from a, 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 a Jewish post-Holocaust perspective. We always talk about the, the exodus in terms of deliverance, right? It's foundational mm. to liberation theology, right? Mm. God's deliverance of an oppressed people. Right, but if everybody dies, <laughs> then it becomes a deportation. Right, deliverance promised, and then uh, recanted. Yeah, and that becomes a, a the Holocaust puts a very interesting spin on this. That's right, because that is exactly in many, many respects, how so many Jews were duped into getting on trains. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about the 400,000 Jews from Hungary that were eliminated and exterminated at at Treblinka and other death camps in 1944, 400,000 in 10 weeks. Oh, wow. And a lot of the research, you know, shows that, you know, the the, the camps were a promise of something better. Mm. You know, we're taking you to some place that's going to be better. Well, it's not true. They, you were brought up there to die. Well, mm. that's exactly the logic that Moses says, says to God, why not, 
don't do this, the Egyptians will think you brought him out into the wilderness to die. Yeah. All right. So the stakes are really high mm. in this story. Um, and so we have to really think about it before we draw too many conclusions too fast. That's right. Or, yeah, before we just let our typical interpretations of the story sort of mm-hmm. overrule some of these really important nuances. Um, That's right. Yeah, there's something else I'd like to add um, just as, a, as I was reading through this and preparing. It's interesting the ways in which Moses um, talks God. He convinces God to not do away with the people and to not let his anger burn. And yet mm-hmm. we see Moses return down the mountain. Mm-hmm. And, yes. And the, yes, first, yes. the first thing that Moses does is he lets his anger burn. <laughs> mm-hmm. He gets really mad and he takes God's written word and breaks it at the foot of, uh, I think it's at the foot of the altar of the mm-hmm. golden calf, or he throws it down. It um, he breaks it. He breaks you know, it. He's just been given holy writ by God, and he breaks it because he's angry. And he told God just a few verses before to not be so angry. So that's that's always that struck me as really interesting. We I think we typically read Moses as sort of this gallant sort of noble figure who's coming down to rescue the people from God's wrath, but. Um, there's there's some other subtle mm-hmm. issues that are going on with Moses, oh, with Moses' right. relationship to his people. Yeah, verse twenty. Moses took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to a powder, and scattered it upon the water and made the people of Israel drink it. It's a very specific punishment. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, in the Deuteronomy account of the golden calf, that detail is not present. Mm, interesting. He didn't grind it up. And the, Deuteronomy focuses more on Moses' intercession, the Moses that we know. Yeah, yeah. The Exodus version is a much grittier, problematic <laughs> Moses. Yeah. But something else to cons- to think about yeah. with why this, why Moses is the way he is, is that if you there's a book called The Body in Pain by Elaine Scarry. Okay. came out in 1985, which is this treatise on how pain works. And one of the things about pain is that it's con- is that it tends to take over. Mm. Right? You know, and we kind of all know this. It's like when you have like a, a, a an earache or a fingernail or a paper cut or mm-hmm. something toothache, right? Um, the kind of the smallest of scratches can be so painful that that's all you think about. It takes Mm -hmm. over all your senses, right? So if we think about God being in pain, Hmm. right? The anger consuming, right? Right. And then that transferring to Moses, you know, is Moses then the agent of God's pain, which Moses acquired on the top of the mountain. Mm. Interesting. Right, because because we kind of all know this, right? When when some, with somebody that you know and love is in pain, then it affects you. Yeah, and, and you are you 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 become a carrier. Yeah, or an, uh, you act out. Right, right. And, you know, or you. It's just, I call it borrowed anxiety. You know, it, it's just sure. so that's that's a possibility. 
Right, but this story actually happens twice, different situations, mm. but God wanting to consume the people and Moses having to intervene in Numbers 11 through 14, you know, the, the story of the spies. Yes. When that doesn't go right, God gets mad again. Very similar mm. to this. So I think from a traditional Christian reading, we get really uncomfortable with this because we want to always come back to God as love. Yes. Right. God would never harm. God is love. Right. But if you're going to include, (coughs) excuse me, if you're going to include, include the Old Testament as part of your sacred canon. And if you're going to affirm that as part of the Bible, it becomes authoritative, Mm. then you've got to take seriously the way the Old Testament portrays these sides of God. Mm. Right, because they're not easily digestible. Right, um, and so perhaps it gives a little more color to passages in the New Testament um, that that talk about Christ absorbing the wrath of God. Mm. Yeah, right, or that that hymn that we sing in Christ alone. You know, the wrath of God was satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that perhaps the theologically, from a Christian point of view, the cross is where this kind of anger becomes absorbed. Mm. Yeah, right. But we have to. I think it's important to make those That's connections. Right. That's right. right. But still, you know, in in an Exodus context, none of that would have been in view. That's right. Because they're still just meeting this God. They're still, yeah. It, at least as far as the storyline is put together. That's right. Right. They're still getting to know this human divine relationship, which on a good day uh, is still pretty volatile. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, One other note about this particular uh, passage is its location in the text itself. Mm -hmm. Um, If you actually read through the preceding four or five chapters, is that right? Yeah, from 25 to 31. 25 to 31, um, God is giving the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. And then just on the other side of this this passage about the golden calf, you have the actual construction of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. 35 uh, to 40. Which is another you know five chapters of very onerous mm-hmm. detail. That's right. <laughs> Explicit Explicitly... Boring detail. In which everyone behaves perfectly. Exactly. But in the middle of this, we have this very um, volatile, eruptive um, story. Explosive. Mm -hmm. People playing, laughing. Rebel, doing whatever rebel, they're doing, you're doing yeah. whatever they're doing, and uh, so it, it's it's interesting to notice that in light of yeah, and we have to ask the question of what's the story doing there? Yes. So maybe we can talk about that after the break. Yes, I hope we do. I'm yes, sure we will. We will. Uh, and yeah, with that, we will take a brief little break, and we'll be right back. Right back. Welcome to the break. We are so happy you guys are listening, first of all. Um, 
Charles and I would do this regardless of whether there are listeners out there, but it does. It's always better when they're listeners. It's always nice <laughs> uh, when there are listeners. And I've, I know I've had conversations with friends of mine at work who have been listening, and they've pointed out things that I totally missed. Uh, like one, there was a, during the Samson and Delilah oh, yeah. episode, yeah. Uh, somebody noticed a dog. There's a dog in the lower left-hand corner that's actually pulling at the sheets uh, and Delilah is sort of stuck between this image of a dog and Samson. And uh, I looked it up, and apparently dogs symbolize loyalty and fidelity. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly you have this detail of, of Delilah on one side, you've got Samson on the other side, you have this mm-hmm. image of loyalty and fidelity, and she's being pulled between the two. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah. It's really interesting stuff. And that was because a uh, listener, Gabe, at work, shout out to him. Uh, brought it to my attention. So we're really thankful that you guys listen uh, to and we us. would love to have your feedback. I mean, yes. write to us, post it on, our, mm-hmm. on the website, um, email. We'd love to have it. Absolutely. We're, we're always thankful for it. So uh, you can follow us on mm-hmm. Instagram and Twitter. Right. And also, if you have ideas of passages or art pieces that you would like for us to review, send them our way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, paintings. We're thinking about branching out into mm-hmm. other forms of music mm-hmm. and perhaps even television, miniseries, movies. Yeah, all forms of art. Are, all forms of art, right, inter, intersect with the Bible. So yeah. we're very interested in your feedback. That's right. That's exactly right. So, uh, yeah, if you want to support us, we would really appreciate that. Uh, if you'd rate us on iTunes... Uh, other places where you get your podcast that that is always a great way to help mm-hmm. us out um, word of mouth I found that most of the podcasts I end up listening to are because somebody's told me I should listen to it that's right same here and yeah. I'll listen to it it's like man this is a good podcast yeah. so tell your friends if you think they're interested let them share you know let them know and mm-hmm. we'd really appreciate it so once again thanks for listening we're we're always excited to, to yep. do this podcast absolutely and, uh, yeah yeah We'll get back. So we'll get back to the golden calf. That's right. All right. We are back Back. from break. Such a long break. Such a long break. Yes. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about placement. Okay. Yeah. That's that's where we left off before the break. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about placement. The placement of this story between Mm -hmm. these long detailed Mm -hmm. passages about tabernacles. Yeah, so, you know, like we've talked before in many podcasts before, you know, this sort of central question, why is this text here? What's it doing? Mm-hmm. What's it saying? And one thing this text is doing uh, is that it, it, is, it is interrupting the flow of the tabernacle narrative, mm-hmm. right? Which uh, was thought to be a very consistent hand that wrote, um, the the instructions for the tabernacle and then the fulfillment of those instructions. And in fact, if you look at Exodus twenty five to thirty one, and you line it up with Exodus thirty five to forty, you're going to see almost mirror images right. of each other. Uh, and this pristine behavior, yeah, on the part of everybody. <laughs> and so the story is like plopped in the middle of this. Yeah. And the question is why? Because it's in many ways it's out of context because in 24 Moses goes up the mountain 
But 25 to 31 is not about Moses taking dictation from God Mm. to write the Ten Commandments. It's about the development of the tabernacle and the priesthood. Hmm. So if we're going to have a story about people dancing around a calf, it seems like it would have come somewhere after chapter 20 or 24, somewhere where the people are in view, Mm -hmm. right? 25 to 31, people aren't anywhere. Yeah. So what do you do with that? Well, one thing that we also notice is that if you take the the elements of the story, right? If you look at, you know, what elements are present, things like gold, mm. sacrifices, presence of a priest, yep. something worshipped, right? These are the main elements that are talked about in the development of the tabernacle, mm. right? Gold is everywhere. Yeah. So... What you find in the story of the golden calf is a reversal. Uh, okay. Right. It's it 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 re let's just take gold as a simple example because it's the biggest one. Yeah. Right. Gold put for purposes of God, gold put for the purposes of a calf. Yeah. Aaron, who's the high priest, who's supposed to be the leader of God's people, um in twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty um, is he and his family exalted, you know, vestments are d- described in detail, yeah. also with lots of gold. Um, and in 32, um, Aaron's helping him build his calf. Oops. Reversal. Yep. Um, from a literary point of view, we never can forget that for whatever else can be said about the Bible, it is literature mm-hmm. because it's written text. Right. The other reversal that you see is that, and Seth alluded to it a minute ago, is that 25 to 31 and 35 to 40 are long, detailed, tedious chapters. Right. I mean, if you're if you're honest, I think most people just kind of skip right over them. Right. Right. It's almost or, like let's get to the action. To get to the, or if yeah, you well, were if you were reading through the first, you know, twenty five to thirty one, you'd get to the story of the golden calf and be like, oh, finally, yeah, there's something's something happening. happening. But the reversal is from a text that reads like a law code mm. to this very fast moving, fast paced story. Rip the gold. The, you know, ripping the gold off the people, throwing, making a calf. It all happens in six verses. The, yeah, throwing the gold in the fire and out pops a calf and. That's right. And so when we look at form, right, I mean, the, the, what, what's suggested by this? Well, you've got the, the, the story of the calf reads, it, it's quick and it's episodic. Mm-hmm. And that is the stuff of comedy, mm. right? Comic. Yeah. Stroke. Things that are comic move very, very fast. Mm-hmm. Right. If they're too long, they don't work. Yep. Right. Any kid knows this. Right. Cartoons are really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, comedy sketches are really fast. If they're too long, they're not funny. Mm-hmm. But literary comedy like Carnival, which is kind of what's being depicted with the rising up to eat and dance and play. Right. That's right. carnivalesque and revert is a reversal of the formal. Yeah. 
that kind of comedic form is not necessarily, well, in fact, it's mostly never, designed to make you laugh. It's designed to make you think. Okay. Right. So something that is genuinely comedic is there to help you think about something in a different way. Right. That's what makes the difference between a good comedy sketch and a bad one. Yeah. Right. Um, that's what makes the difference between a good stand-up comedian mm. who's really going to critique social issues. Right. And somebody just standing up and telling jokes that aren't funny. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about comedy, then the golden calf story from a literary point of view, as it interrupts this very formal tabernacle is actually a critique of it. Mm. It's a comedic critique. Um, because the the very lengthy tabernacle is describing this very high, holy, serious uh, approach to this um, un, this transcendent this transcendent deity, mm-hmm. right? And the calf comes along and says, "Oh, we're human. We can't do this." Right. Right. And then they're well, just and, all in like six verses. It undoes. What it took five it. chapters to right. establish this sort of transcendent That's right. That's right. Law observing. Yeah, it, it just it just it just t- it takes it apart, mm-hmm. right? And that's the basic movement of comedy is down, yeah. right? Which is, I remember there was this, in the 1990s when Hong Kong was being transferred back to China, okay. from from Britain, right? that there was this event, I think it was China, Hong Kong, where Margaret Thatcher goes to, for this commemoration, and she's going up these stairs, and on the way back, it was a newsreel of it, she trips on the stairs and falls down. And, I mean, it's Margaret Thatcher, right? I mean, yeah. she's the most English, English of English yeah. prime ministers. Very proper, very... Well, you know, falling down the steps, everybody thought it was hilarious. That's right. Well, I mean, it hurts, it's painful. Yeah. But it's comedic in that you have a head of state who trips and falls. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's um, slapstick is yeah. built on that. But it has a, it has a very serious point, mm. right, in that the nature of humanity is not, it, it, it is to transgress the formal. We can't help it. We can't help it. I mean, that's just who we are. So, um, when we think about function of this story, you know, it, it, it very likely could be that it's, it's where it is mm. as a means of providing insight on the fragility of the human divine relationship, right? Mm. Where, right. where uh, there the thought of a holy transcendent God coexisting with this very fragile, inept humanity is not an easy process. Yes. It has to be negotiated. Which is why in 34, at the end of the story, it's when the tablet, when Moses goes back up the mountain to rewrite the tablets. Right. Right. It's Moses who actually writes them, not God. Mm. Right. And Moses comes back down. There's no mayhem. He has the shiny face. Right. Which which demonstrates Moses as mediator, right? Moses has taken on this quality of not 
he's more than human, but he's not divine. Mm. He's this mix. Yeah. Whereas in 32, where we first, the Nolde scene, God is transcendent. He's holy. He can't, and Moses is fully human Mm. and can't control himself either. Yeah. Interesting. So there is a, there's a transition that happens in this. Almost like a resolution Mm -hmm. at the end of this, the, the, format mm-hmm. that that seems to reach a coexist that's right. coexisting of the human and the divine that's right which is kind of the big point that this is a this is a partnership of sorts mm. right it's a and give and take it's, on it's both a give sides. and take on both sides right which yeah. you might could say and this is Again, this is this is anachronistic, but it, it's looking forward to the to the New Testament mm. and Jesus as both God and human, but thinking about Jesus' experience as a human. Mm. Right. It's it's both. You it's can't. Both. You yeah. can't. So, I mean, it's pretty well established. You know, Moses is the prefigure of Jesus, right? I mean, we, yeah. we know that. But I think this story really gives us the grit, the grist. Mm. To, to see how necessary that is. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like any, the, the thought I had as you were kind of talking about all this was that any, any sort of formal system or way of approaching God that doesn't take into account this sort of human spontaneity, human inclination to rise up and play is really a system that's not going to work. That's right. It never does. Yeah. You end up with explosions and calves and grinding of gold and people dying. (laughs) It's just not this, it's, it doesn't work. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those, those formal systems that we tend to maybe rely on a bit too much. Um, well, if, if, if we can kind of go to the very edge of this discussion, sure. I mean, Hopefully, without falling off, but <laughs> right. going to the very what I think the story makes us do this um, is that we you know we have in our in Western Protestant, particularly evangelical theology, right? Yeah. This idea of God knows everything. Yes, and that God knows what's going to happen before it happens, which is. Not a claim that the Hebrew Bible makes, per mm. se, right? That is that is a a New Testament reading of that. But you know, you you can go in the Old Testament, you can go to Isaiah, and you can talk about the sovereignty of God, a God that that there is who is like no other. You know, the supreme one, the only one. You can go, and, and that is established. Mm. In several places in the Hebrew Bible, but the, but that doesn't presuppose in and of itself the idea of God knows what's going to happen. Mm. It doesn't very much like the verb to to to, to Isaac. It doesn't necessarily mean that the people were having an orgy. Right. It could mean that. But it doesn't have to mean that. And, you know, just like God is sovereign and there is no other, I created all things, Isaiah 45, doesn't have to mean 
that that there's no room f- for mystery in God at all. Mm. So th- the reason that's important here really is very much the same way there is the reason why it's important in Genesis 2. Yeah. Right? Because God makes the human being, but then in chapter 2, but then also chapter 2 says, but it's not good for the human being to be alone. Right. So is this something God is observing? In other words, yeah. can God learn things? Yeah. Um, I think the Hebrew Bible would say yes, that God as creator is also capable of learning. Hmm. Which I know for a lot of listeners, that's going to sound like, you know, God sure. can't be God. But... You, you see that you see that a lot. The notion lot. of that sort of give and take relationship mm-hmm. all throughout the Hebrew Bible, especially in Genesis. Like I'm thinking of the story of Cain and Abel. You know, yes. God pronounces this curse on Cain, and Cain goes, "Oh my gosh! Like I'm going to be killed as soon as I leave this place." And God's like, "Ooh, you're mm-hmm. right. I'm actually let me do this. I'm going to put a mark on you to protect you." So it's it's you you do get the sense that God makes the statement. And then Cain responds by saying, this is too much for me. Like, I'm going to, people are going to seek me out. And then God goes, ah, man, that's a good point. Let me help you out. Me, yeah. So, yeah, there, you see that give and take. Uh, again, mm-hmm. Adam and Eve, um, they they sin, they're naked. Um, God hasn't told them they're naked. He created them that way. And, and yet God meets them where they are by giving them clothing. That's right. That's right. Right, and so it's yeah, it's it's that meeting of the human and the divine that that is is a it's a partnership, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. You've got to both almost seem to have to learn from the other. Other, that's right. Which makes it very very different from any other religion of its day. Right. Yeah. To have a god who is both transcendent and imminent, and a god who is in process with humanity. Mm-hmm. Same with the flood, destroy the world and start over. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. So, which you know that helps makes that helps us make sense of those conversations where God changes His mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of Abraham and and God as as they're talking, or the I guess the angel of the Lord. I think is actually the language there as they're talking about the destruction of Sodom. Of Sodom, right? You know, Abraham is bargaining with God and working him down and. Seems to, seems to change God's mind, but perhaps God is is learning from Abraham, or, or willing to or work willing to work with Abraham. Yeah. So it's a question. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not making statements here. I'm just I'm raising questions that I think that the text itself, if we actually really stop to look at it, mm. is prompting as well. Yeah. Yeah. I always got the sense. Um, from these passages that the Israelites, like we give them a lot of crap for the way that they act in, in this idolatrous nature. But when you read through and, and kind of put this story in its literary place, I, man, I, I kind of understand it. Like I get it. Mm-hmm. They've just met this God. They, they don't really know a lot about them. And even what they do know, they just learned it. Like, Moses is gone for 40 days. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What would you do? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, and even even, um, Aaron turning, 
turning it around on, on its head. Mm-hmm. I mean, he says we're going to worship the Lord. That's right. Yahweh. I mean, that's, that's right. That's the... It's not just some random God. That's right. We're going to worship God. Aaron's doing his job. Yeah. Um, it, they may not be worshiping him the way that he wants them to, but they're trying. Maybe they're mm-hmm. trying at least, and, mm-hmm. and um, it's worth something, I think. Well, and I also think it helps us be a little, we should prompts to be a little bit more careful about being so quick to dismiss the Israelites as, oh, well, they were just being idolatrous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, or they should have known better. Right. Yeah. Or something like I that. Think, I think that's the sort of statement that drives a lot of this, is mm-hmm. they should have known better. They should have known that the Lord didn't want them to worship this way, mm-hmm. or they should have known. And, and I just, the more I read it, it's like, I, I don't know if they should have. Maybe they should have, but it doesn't. Or could have. It doesn't necessitate that they should have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and even you know, it makes me think of today. Like, how many of us worship God in a way that's perfect? If we're talking about a God that is transcendent, who is literally you know beyond our description, any sort of aim to identify and worship Him is gonna. It's not going to capture the full thing. Mm-hmm. We, we might capture parts of His nature, but. It's going to be all of it. It's inherently difficult to worship a God that is, by definition, undefinable. And, um, you know, they, they may have been wider than the mark than we are today, but, again, in, in scales of infinity, how, how, how wide what of a mark? Yeah, what what does degree it does it make? Um, maybe it does make a degree, but um, just some thoughts. Yeah, just some thoughts. Any, any final um Concerns, considerations, questions to leave the reader, or not the reader, the listener? Well, other than to, I think this story is a good example of why it's important to look at where a story is placed. Yeah. Context. Context. Context is key. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's really good. This is, uh, this is our second Null Day. Glad to have done it. Yes. We, um, Great. It's a... Almost a per, almost the perfect painting to get this discussion started, right? Yeah, because it picks up so much on tradition, much more so than the Joseph painting does. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Well, we will see you next next time. See you, I see think you next time. We will be discussing uh, Raphael. That's right, and the Transform- Transfiguration. So, be looking for that. Uh, we will catch you later. Catch you later. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks.